Father, as matters prayed, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word. Um, soften our hearts, calm our minds, enable us to hear your word and respond for our good and the glory of Jesus. Amen. Whilst watching TV as a family over Christmas, we stumbled across one of the all-time great movies. It was made in 1996. I hope you've seen it. It's called Twister, and the title says it all. Basically, crazy people chase tornadoes for the greater good of mankind, and everyone, or almost everyone, lives happily ever after. What more could you ask for in a movie? The good news is the long-overdue sequel, cunningly titled Twisters, is one of the most anticipated movie events of 2024, apparently. Now, one of the things that Twister does brilliantly is to capture the frightening reality and destructive power of a tornado, a power that some of us may have experienced uh, over the last few weeks. It also makes it really obvious that ignoring tornado warnings is an unbelievably stupid thing to do. It can only lead to disaster, Unless, of course, you're able to tie yourself with a belt to a water pipe which goes very deep underground. If you can do that, you're okay. Which brings us slightly unexpectedly to Paul's letter to the Galatians, which we're looking at together over this semester. For as Timothy George brilliantly points out in his commentary, Galatians is basically a tornado warning. According to Acts 13 and 14, after being sent out by the church in Antioch, it's in Syria, Paul and Barnabas made their way via Cyprus to Turkey. And as they went, Acts 13, 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole, na- whole region. Pisidian Antioch, Iconia, Lystra, Derby, in quick succession in every place throughout Galatia, both Jews and Gentiles hear the message of the Lord Jesus and are brought to new life. Elders are appointed, new churches come to life. The response is startling and the kickback is immediate as Paul and Barnabas are slandered, stoned, mistaken for gods and run out of town, heading back to Antioch at the end of Acts 14. And what happened next? Well, even before the meeting in Acts 15 could work out how Jews and Gentiles could coexist in the local churches, things in Galatia get messy, very messy. Some people show up and start troubling the church, 1 verse 6, distorting the gospel. What they're teaching is so dangerous that the very survival of these fledgling churches is under threat. So Paul drops everything and writes what is probably his very first pastoral letter. And it's fair to say that Galatians is not subtle. In the same way that you don't stop to explain the physics of why a sharp object will quickly penetrate skin when you see your two-year-old playing with a kitchen knife, but just yell, put that down. Paul doesn't write Romans to the Galatians. He writes, well, Galatians. You may know that countless books, articles, and PhD theses including the pick of them by our very own Wesley Regin, have been written on identifying the precise nature of the Galatian problem. What was going on? Well, if you want the definitive answer, ask Wes. In the meantime, I'll give you my pre-Regin-approved take on the situation. Okay? <laughs> we need to answer three questions. Okay? Who was causing the problems in Galatia? Well, they actually seem to have been sincere, well-intentioned Jewish Christians. 
These guys weren't trying to wreck the church. But the problem was that what they were saying, even though it sounded sensible, completely undermined the gospel. Which takes us to the second question. What were they actually saying? Well, they were telling people to get circumcised and keep the Jewish law. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Because these unwitting false teachers almost certainly weren't telling people that this was the way to be saved. They seem to have been fairly solid on the fact that justification was by faith alone. They knew that we become Christians by trusting Jesus. But having been saved by faith, it seems that they were now telling the Galatian men to go under the knife and everybody to start observing Torah. But why on earth would any Christian suggest doing that? That's the third question we need to answer before we really get going. Why were they telling the Galatians to act like Jews? They were doing it to make their life easier and also to help them feel better about themselves. See, according to Acts 13 and 14, the gospel had created all kinds of waves in Galatia. It had disrupted communities all over the region. As people came to know Christ, it caused all kinds of tension and embarrassment and even shame, both, both for those who'd been brought to new life and for those who'd previously cared for them. They're benefactors. Anyone who was anyone in Galatia had a benefactor, someone richer, older, wiser, who would look out for you and support you as, you're made, as you made your way in the world. Kind of like an MTS trainer, only with money. But the problem was that the benefactor's reputation depended to a large degree on how his or her protege turned out. So if a person became a Christian, it caused all kinds of embarrassment. Nobody likes to make their sponsor feel bad. If only there was some way to take the sting out of the shame. Enter those troubling the church. It does help to know that at this point in the first century in the Roman Empire, thanks to Claudius' edict on respecting Jewish customs in AD 41, being Jewish was relatively socially acceptable. It was certainly a lot better than being a Christian. So looking a bit more Jewish would make life easier. And then there's the fact that getting circumcised and putting in all that effort to keep the law did have some benefits. It felt good virtuous even, give people a reason to feel confident that God had approved of them. See, acting like Jews would make their life much more comfortable now, and in the future it promised greater confidence that God would give us the thumbs up on the last day. Now, in a way, it sounds almost innocuous. But Paul could see that buying into this well-intentioned but extremely dangerous teaching would very quickly lead the Galatians to lose their grip on the gospel itself. So Galatians is written to help people who believe the gospel make sure they keep living the gospel when faced with a double temptation, opting for an easy life. It's almost like they lived in Queensland. And starting to get smug. It's almost like they were students at a theological college. See, this is an urgent, no-holds-barred letter to warn the Galatians that if they start trying to fit in with everyone else, if they put their confidence in their own efforts rather than Christ, it will only end in disaster. 
It's a tornado warning. As we start this year at QTC, this is God's word to us. Perhaps like no other book in the New Testament, Galatians calls us to take hold of and keep hold of the radical cross-shaped freedom which our God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians is rich and intensely full-on and stretching, and it's a guide to how to survive and flourish even at theological college, whether you are fresh-faced and innocent or a grizzled and cynical veteran nearing the end of your time. In the first 10 verses of the letter, Paul wastes no time and lays down five things to remember that will give us a great foundation for this year as we seek to throw ourselves together into grasping and delighting in and submitting to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He starts off in verse 1 by reminding the Galatians and us that the message of the gospel isn't ours to change. Paul, an apostle, Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's credentials to write to the Galatians, if you can call them that, are simple. He's been entrusted with the message of the gospel by God himself. The Father brought Jesus to life. Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and has now commissioned him to tell the world that a new age has dawned. He's an apostle. Both his authority and message come from God and from God alone and are established by the power of the resurrection. Now, I know we're not apostles sent by God in the foundational way that Paul was, but there's a basic truth about all ministry here that we do well to take on board. Both our message and our mission aren't actually ours at all. We are sent by God to tell what he has given us in the power of the resurrection. In all that we do, we're answerable to the Lord Jesus himself and to God the Father, both for what we say and how we say it. Both for what we do and how we do it. We we don't get to decide either what to do or how to do it. We serve under authority. Calvin once wrote, no one can take it on themselves to proclaim Christ. It belongs to Christ alone to govern his church. When I read that, I thought, that sounds a bit odd. I mean, we don't need permission to do ministry, do we? We're all supposed to do it. Shouldn't we just decide what to do and get on with it? Not really. (laughs) We need to embrace the fact that as the people of God, we're actually under his authority. He sends us, he commissions us, he entrusts us with his message. We're not free agents. We don't opt into ministry or just put our hands up and say, yeah, I'll do that. At a much more fundamental level, we're commissioned, sent, equipped by God himself. Now, how is that authority expressed? Well, it's actually expressed through God's people, the church. That's actually why none of you here were accepted into college without a reference from your local church, without someone saying that time here would do you good as we seek to serve Christ together. It's why we don't just kind of on Thursday mornings have a list at the front and say, anybody want to be a cross-cultural worker or a student worker or a pastor? We've got three A4 sheets at the front. Just come and sign up. Because we all 
serve under the authority of God expressed through his church. We don't talk much these days about specific calls to ministry, which is probably a good thing, as it's not the language the New Testament uses. But as we've given up on that language, I think we've also given up on the sense that we're answerable to God and other people for the way in which we serve him. That we're even answerable to God for the message we proclaim. That we serve at his pleasure. Because the message of the gospel isn't ours to change or shape, but to receive and proclaim. Now, I reckon it's good for us to remember that at the start of a new year at college. Every class that takes place, every book we read, every paper we write, falls under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This year, it's our job to grow in our grasp of the gospel, to seek to learn more of the riches of his grace and the extent of his power and beauty. And so to live in a way which more fully embodies and reflects his glory. And even as we do that, we're answerable to, accountable to God himself through his people. There are no mavericks in the kingdom of God. Rather, together we submit to God and speak his message. So Paul says he's been appointed by Christ. The message he proclaims isn't his or theirs or ours to change. And then he says in verse 2 that the message of God has been entrusted to all of us. Don't miss the little phrase that kicks off verse 2. And all the brothers, sisters are included, who are with me. Even though Paul says that he's been appointed by God as a special delegate, he makes it clear he writes on behalf of everyone. By which I, I take it he means everyone in the church at Antioch in Syria where he's based at the end of Acts 14. Paul's been appointed to a unique role, serving these new churches springing up all over the place across the Mediterranean. But it doesn't mean he's the final word on the truth. Not only is the message of the gospel ultimately God's, but God has entrusted that message to all his people. That means we're all caught up in this great gospel project together. It's a shared responsibility to preach the gospel and guard the gospel and help keep each other on track as we live out the gospel. You may not have thought much about this before, but it really does take the whole church to grasp and embody and live out the gospel. God has given us each other to learn from, to sharpen one another, to spur each other on and encourage each other. And we need each other whether we realize it or whether we like it or not. Now, of course, that's primarily true about our local churches. When you walk into church on Sunday, I hope you realize that it wouldn't actually work if it was just the person preaching and you. Or if you are the person preaching, just you. It would be lacking something. We need each other. When Paul says that we're the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, insisting that every part needs the others, he's not joking. If we're to stay on track, we actually need each other. And that is a particular application when it comes to our community here at QTC. Studying theology is a team sport. If we're to be equipped to serve Christ well for a lifetime, to think in godly and rich theological ways, to understand ourselves and our world, then we need each other. Now, at one level, that means we need all kinds of teachers. 
mean, much as I love the Old Testament, even I would concede that on its own, it's not quite enough to shape and strengthen and equip everyone. We do need just a little bit of extra help from the New Testament and systematic theology and church history and ethics. But it goes beyond that. We don't just need a variety of teachers. We actually need the lives and voices of everyone sitting in class beside us. We need the whole community. If we're to be spurred on and held accountable and gently corrected and sharpened and consistently loved, it can only happen if all of us together have grasped the fact that we need each other and have a responsibility for each other. Because the message of the gospel has been entrusted to all of us. And together, Paul says, we need to hold on to the third thing. It's the glorious reality that through the gospel, God has already delivered us, verses 3 to 5. These verses are a breathtaking summary of what God has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If this is Paul's first letter, it sets the pattern for all his others as he captures the sum total of what God gives us in Christ in these two simple words, grace and peace. At the beginning of the Bible, God's dramatic intervention in the life of the family of Jacob, rescuing them from Egypt, revealing himself to the people through Moses at Sinai, builds up to a climax in the unlikely location of number six. When the new people are assembled in their camp with God himself, the speaking God, encamped at the center, finally Aaron and his sons are to stand up and say these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. The goal of God's choice of Abraham, the goal of the Exodus, was first to allow his people to taste grace and peace. That's why he brought them out of Egypt. And Paul says that's why God has acted in and through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue the Galatians, rescue people like us. The word Paul uses here for rescue or deliver occurs multiple times in Exodus 3 and 4 in in the Old Testament Greek. Now, of course, we're not rescued from Egypt, but we do experience a new Exodus, a new rescue, this time from this present evil age. The churches in Galatia needed to hear not only that God has delivered us from sin's penalty, but actually has set us free from its power here and now. God has already guaranteed that we have been set free to stand before God in the day of judgment and hear not his condemnation, but his words of welcome. And how did God do all this? He did it through Jesus' death in our place on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus' definitive, decisive action on the cross triggers a new exodus. It brings us out into an entirely new reality. We are moved from one age, one world, one jurisdiction to another, to a world of grace. You can probably see already why Paul's so keen to underline this for the Galatians. 
Let yourself be circumcised, the mark of the old covenant. Take on the, the yoke of the Jewish Torah in order to please God. Don't do it. It makes no sense at all. It's a massive backward step which shows that they've lost sight of the staggering impact of the cross of Christ. The new age has already broken in. We've been swept up in it. How on earth could we swap that for the slavery of trying to please God for our actions? Well, quite easily, actually. It's important before we go any further in this book of Galatians that we own the fact that every single one of us is prone to forgetting the gospel and acting as if we're more than happy to take responsibility for our own ultimate justification. Inside all of us, there is a miserable little gnomist just itching to get out. See, legalists think that we can be justified by being good, that we can save ourselves, essentially. Gnomists think that we can grow and earn God's pleasure by, by being good. Gnomists say, I've been saved by grace, but aren't you impressed by how godly I am? See, it's perfectly possible to hold on to the doctrine of justification by faith in our heads and yet functionally act as if it's all down to us. That's what these stupid Galatians, as Paul calls them in chapter 3, are doing. But before we start looking down on them, we should probably remember a few things. Every time we pat ourselves in the back for being godly or selfless, we're acting like the Galatians. Every time we look down on a brother or sister who's messed up, we're acting like Galatians. Every time we think, ah, but I'm a QTC student. I did MTS. I'm a candidate. I've done Hebrew as well as Greek. <laughs> I go to a church planting church. We're acting like Galatians. Every time we think we're thoughtful, culturally sensitive Christians, not like those hard-edged and sensitive, aggressive conspiracy theory types, we're acting like Galatians. Every time we think We've discovered the secret of maturity. Guess what? We need to read Galatians. By opting for an easy life and starting to live like Jews again, by taking just a little bit of pride in their religious performance, the Galatian Christians had made a very dangerous step that would surely lead to them losing their grip on, their go grip on the gospel. And Paul gets so worked up about what they're doing because he knows that any suggestion that it's all about what we do, even if they're just saying that that was their confidence on the last day, will eat our joy and freedom for breakfast. And Paul knows that sooner or later this odious gnomism will become full-blown legalism and will kill off the gospel. See, Paul writes this letter because he knows it's possible to lose our grip on the gospel without even noticing, even while insisting that we are still solidly committed to justification by faith alone, which makes it so very important for us to hold on to the fact that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. 
Through the gospel, God's already delivered us from this age into the new age, into the glorious, enduring reality of his kingdom. Which takes us to the fourth thing Paul says in verses 6 and 7. He says there is only one gospel. I'm astonished, verse 6, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Well, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. When Paul says he's astonished, he means he's completely gobsmacked. They are being incredibly stupid. He basically calls them idiots later in the letter. Now, Craig Keener points out that in the ancient world, and I quote, unless a teacher was extremely annoyed, he would typically greet his students in endearing terms. I'll let you find out for yourselves whether that's the norm here or not. (laughs) But the apostle is visibly shocked that a matter of weeks after he left, they lost the plot so spectacularly. Now, the language of desertion he uses here probably picks up Exodus 32, 8 and the Septuagint in the same way that no sooner had the people of Israel escaped Egypt than they'd made a golden calf. No sooner had the Galatians embraced the gospel and been brought into a realm of grace that they'd swapped the gospel for a dreadful parody of the real thing. They're also swapping Paul for those who were troubling them. The troublers of God's people in Galatia, like Achan in the book of Joshua, were in danger of dragging down the entire work of the gospel because the problem is that to distort the gospel is to lose the gospel. Now, remember, these people weren't denying the gospel, at least on the surface, but they were adding to it. And as soon as they do that, it's just not the gospel anymore. Making single malt whiskey is a billion-dollar industry. Single malt is called single malt for two reasons. It's made from malted barley. It's the malt bit. And the single bit has to come from a single distillery. Add one drop of Bruchladach to your Lafroig or any of the other countless other unpronounceable Scottish names, And you've wrecked it. One drop, and it's not single malt. It's a blend. may not taste much different or look any different. You may think it tastes better and be much easier on the palate, but it doesn't matter. It's just not single malt anymore. One drop wrecks it in exactly the same way. Paul knows that adding a single drop of legalistic thinking into the gospel makes it not the gospel anymore. The Galatians genuinely didn't see that encouraging people to be circumcised or picking up bits of the Jewish law mattered that much. But Paul knew that by doing that, sooner or later, they would lose the doctrine of justification. Luther says, if the article of justification is once lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. Perhaps you can see why this letter is like a tornado warning. Everything looks okay, but disaster is coming. The corrosive toxicity of the message of these teachers will destroy everything because there is only one gospel. It's probably good to remember at the start of this year that we're not really here to learn anything new. 
sorry to break this to you. Should have waited until after you'd all paid your fees before telling you that. But honestly, if you come up with something that's genuinely fresh and new, if you come up with some startling insight that no one in the history of the church has ever thought of before, it's almost certainly wrong. Novelty is a much overrated quality when it comes to the gospel. We're here to deepen our grasp of and appreciation for and commitment to the one gospel handed down from Jesus himself via the apostles and all those faithful ones on whose shoulders we stand. There is only one gospel. And you won't be surprised to know that Paul adds a fifth thing. This really, really matters. In fact, it's a matter of life and death. Look look at verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. When you're warning someone of impending disaster, uh, it's not really a time for politeness. Excuse me, sorry to interrupt, don't want to intrude. Do you realize your house is on fire? It It doesn't really work. Paul says, this is a matter of life and death. It doesn't matter if the person saying the wrong thing claims to be sent directly from God or even if they're one of the heavenly beings associated with delivering the Torah on Mount Sinai. We'll come back to that in chapter 3. Our our response should be the same. That's not the gospel. And sorry, but you're cursed. Strong language, but it couldn't be more important. Now, given that Paul has already alluded to the events of the Exodus several times, I suspect that his language is drawn from Deuteronomy 27 to 30, where Moses sets out the choice facing God's people as they go into the land in stark terms. 30 verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. For us, the choice we face is to embrace the blessing of the truth of the one gospel. And to fail to do that is to choose the curse. To put ourselves in the position of those who are opposed to God. Hear these chilling words. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I know this makes for a pretty full-on start to semester, but we can't avoid it. Every word that's said and written in this building this year does so under this banner. If in New Testament classes, Wes and Brandon teach you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let Wes and Brandon be accursed. (laughs) If in Old Testament classes, Doug or I preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let us be accursed. Mark distorts the gospel and grace and eschatology, accursed. Andrew, if he starts advocating ancient heresies in early church history, accursed. And by the way, if any of you twist the gospel out of shape, if you get the chance to preach on Sunday or give a talk at the youth group or teach kids church or lead a growth group, Accursed. The lot of us. 
Now, I know that Paul says elsewhere, says in 2 Corinthians, that in Christ, incredibly, we have been made sufficient for the task of gospel proclamation, which is deeply reassuring. Let's not rush there too quickly. Let's just sit for a moment with the frightening responsibility of passing on this gospel accurately without distorting it and mucking it up. For this is a matter of life and death. My earliest memories of church are of a somber man in a black flowing dress thing, slowly ascending a set of steps to a raised pulpit to speak serious words I didn't really understand to a hushed congregation packed into a sea of mahogany pews. Now, I confess that I am very glad that in this generation we have comfy seats, air conditioning, sensible lecterns, and above all, that we've ditched the dresses. I'm glad, too, that we've moved away from one man doing everything and multiply the opportunities for people to build up the body of Christ by speaking the gospel, including having a go at teaching the Bible. But I think we may also have lost something along the way the seriousness of the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The English Puritan Richard Baxter once famously said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. He knew it was a matter of life and death. We do well to remember that, to pour over, sweat over, pray over what we say, to sleep badly the night before we speak because we're so committed to making sure we don't lead people astray and present the truth to them in the clearest, warmest, truest way we can under God. Because the message of the gospel isn't ours to change, but it's been entrusted to all of us It's our job to proclaim this gospel, the gospel which has delivered us from our sin and from this present age, the one and only gospel. It's a matter of life and death. So Paul says, how can we cave in and opt for an easy life? That's where Paul goes in verse 10 and where we'll finish. What do we need to do in the light of all this? Paul says, let's live to serve Christ, not people. Look at what Paul says again in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Now, there's actually a lot going on here. In the light of chapter 5, which we'll get to eventually, it seems that the Galatians were accusing Paul of being a people pleaser. Even though he told them not to be circumcised when in Jerusalem, he'd apparently circumcised Timothy. I think they were accusing him of being a people-pleasing, flip-flopping hypocrite. And in part, he's responding to that. But his main point's really about them. By caving into social and religious pressure and trying to look more like Jews, it's actually the church members in Galatia who are playing to the crowd. Which is why Paul says explicitly that the gospel sets us free from trying to please people. Paul knows that we've received the peerless gift of God's grace in Christ Jesus. This this gift given through the gospel is radically, dramatically, permanently free and freeing. By bringing us into the family of God, by uniting us to Christ, by introducing us to the new age of the kingdom, God has actually released us from every obligation to other people other than that of telling them of this precious gift. 
to try to fit in with the people of this present age is plain dumb. To try to win the approval of people in this present age to which we no longer belong is really silly. To try to avoid offending or upsetting the people of this present age is a fool's errand. For we are servants of Christ. So how come we are still so prone to trying to please people? Now, I know for some of us, it's a bigger issue than others. And if you think you're someone who doesn't care about what anyone in the world thinks, I'd love to meet you over morning coffee and try to dissuade you of that notion because I don't believe you. (laughs) Some of us want to please everybody. All of us. want to please somebody. There are people in all of our lives who make us feel a little insecure and draw that out of us. How does that happen? It's because we lose our grip on the gospel so easily. You know, it's not actually possible to believe the gospel and suck up to people at the same time. It's not possible to actually have a firm grip of the gospel and try to make a good impression on other people at the same time. It's not possible to believe the gospel and try to fit in at the same time. It's not possible to hold on to the gospel and try to keep everyone happy at the same time. Don't take it from me. Paul says it plainly. If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. I reckon that's a timely word. As over these days and weeks, we get to know each other a bit better. Let's ask for God's help to act like servants of Christ, like brothers and sisters. Let's not try to impress each other. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you have siblings, siblings aren't all that easy to impress. Too much shared history. Too much water under the bridge. (laughs) Too much evidence of our past lack of impressiveness for our carefully curated version of ourselves to get any traction with our flesh and blood. You see, the gospel makes us family, brothers and sisters. We are a family of sinful people for whom Christ died, recipients of limitless grace. So let's spare ourselves the pain and be real with each other from the beginning. Because we all know we're not ultimately that impressive anyway. In his commentary on this passage, Calvin says simply, ambitious people can't serve Christ. Ambitious people can't serve Christ. None of us can serve two masters. Other people make terrible masters. So whether you're tempted to try to please or impress the lecturers or the person sitting next to you or your pastor or even just yourself, now would be a great moment to pause and ask God to help you recognize it when you do it, to forgive you and to reorient you, to live together as those who have received his grace and so don't need to please anyone other than our tender father who readily lavishes his love on us. The Lord Jesus Christ sets us free from this present age, which includes the burden of pleasing people, living for their approval. He does, you know. We already have his approval in a stunning, lifelong, non-returnable gift. 
1563, a man called Zacharias Ursinus was commissioned to write a set of questions and answers to help the good burghers of Heidelberg in southern Germany understand biblical faith. The first question and answer of his Heidelberg Catechism captures the way in which Christ sets us free through the gospel so beautifully that we finish with this. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And then this. Because I belong to him, Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God enable us to grasp it, hold on to it, live it, and through it this semester and beyond, to delight in and live to please in him, live to please him together. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, work in us that we see ourselves reflected in this book of the Galatians. Thank you that this letter was written to them, but it's been handed down for us. That together we might hold on to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That we might be mastered by it. That we might be shaped by it. That together we might live it and proclaim it. Work in us, we pray, for the glory of Jesus and our great good. Amen.